Today's scripture reading comes from two places in the Bible. First, we'll be reading Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, and then we'll be reading Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 35. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep this Sabbath day. Numbers chapter 15. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done with him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. May God bless the reading of his word. And according to your poll numbers, I will wipe down the podium before Dr. Sunquist speaks. <laughs> kinds of images of purity and holiness that come up right now, as well as pharisaical teachings about cleaning on the outside and what's on the inside, but I won't go there. It's um, a day of what is seen and what is unseen. We don't see the virus, but it kills. I don't see a congregation, but I'm assuming you're alive and out there. I'm sorry about that second reading from Numbers, <clears throat> but it's in the Bible. I just wanted to get your attention and let you know that uh, Sabbath is really, really important to God. But I have a third reading, which is from Ch John chapter 9. It's this beautiful chapter about the healing of the blind man, but in the midst of it, there's this little teaching about the Pharisees, and I'd like to read that section. So it's John chapter 9 verses 13 to 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and he said, he's a prophet. 
It's a great passage where you see how easy it is to kind of misuse the Sabbath for your own benefit. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. In this time of global isolation, where each day we hear more news and more questions are raised than answers given, we trust that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to hold closely to you, to take in your word and to live it. Help us to live your word every day. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, the title of my message is Sabbath, a matter of life and death. But before that, it just struck me that pretty much every waking minute for the last two weeks, um, as a seminary president, I've had to think about my staff, my faculty, our students, four different campuses, and then I was checking the news, and then the uh, state accreditation agencies, and then any kind of state uh, uh, health agencies are sending us messages. So I'm constantly concerned about the coronavirus. So I think it would be foolish for me to jump right in and talk about Sabbath without making a few comments from the pulpit about the situation we're in. This is a sermon which had to be rewritten a few times in the last two weeks. We all sense that everything is changing, and in some ways everything is changing. If you permit me, I'd like to do some brief reflections on why no one showed up to my sermon this morning, (laughs) or in other words, that Christian life and worship, what's it like in a season of global pandemic? Even though we sense that everything is changing, that is not true. The reason we still meet to worship and the reason I will preach a sermon on this Sunday is because some things must remain the same until Jesus returns. We will worship. We will follow Jesus until he returns. I'm here to tell you that what we are experiencing with the disruptions in travel, in schooling, in shopping, and even socializing is shocking to us. But many people in the world live daily with restrictions that we cannot even imagine. In the United States, we have lived an unprecedented period of time with peace on our shores and material comfort. Most people in the world suffer on a daily basis or weekly basis. They can't imagine the kind of life we get to live. There have been much worse times in recent history, too. Now, I'm a historian, and I study these things. I wrote a book on the 20th century, And uh, I'm not promoting it now, so please don't go on Amazon and buy it right now. But I did write a book on the 20th century, and one of the things that I came away with, I was totally shocked by how much suffering, persecution, death there was in the 20th century. Our sense of national outrage and sense of disbelief comes from our experience of relative ease and comfort for the past generations. This is not to belittle our unpleasantness at all. Many people will die and are dying right now. Jobs will be lost. Students will lose money. They will lose the opportunity to play sports, to play in concerts, and to have commencement. 
there's going to be a lot of loss. We all feel it now. However, I want to put this in perspective. As bad as it is for us, we do have plenty of food and fuel. Distribution is our problem, not scarcity. It's like a time, a wartime ex experience for us. Here are some of the wartime events from the past 160 years to put this in perspective, if you will forgive me for expressing what we have been through the last 160 years. The flu pandemic that was 102 years ago killed 675,000 Americans. Today, globally, we have 13,582 people have died of this pandemic. And actually, that was at 7.30 this morning. By the time I closed up my computer at 9.45, it was 13,642. Another 60 people had died. 750,000 soldiers died in the Civil War. 70 to 80 million people died in World War II. 20 million people died in World War I. The Vietnam War, 1.3 million. 1.5 million Syrian refugees in Lebanon right now. There's one refugee for every four people in Lebanon right now. The Armenian genocide killed about 1.5 million people. All of this is to say the human experience that we have is filled with suffering. Yes, we're in a very unusual period of time right now, but no, it's not that unusual, unfortunately, as a part of the human condition. We do not know how bad this pandemic will be. But when history is written, it will be part of the many terrible tragedies of human, the human story. Much of human suffering is brought on by humans. Some is not. We as Christians are called to point the way to life and hope through our service to others, through our prayers, and being real Christians of hope for those around us. That's always been the case in times of suffering and war and pandemic and starvation. This has been the case since the first century. We are called to be real Christians for the sake of the gospel and the nations at this time. And at the same time, for Christians, this is a very important season for us. Lest we forget, this is Lent. We are standing between Ash Wednesday and Easter. 40 days, not counting Sundays, 40 days of repentance. And for many of us, fasting or refusing to partake in certain things which we find joy in as a way of drawing near to Christ. Lent is a season to repent, to fast, reflect, and confess. In the early church, Lent was a period of 40 days, and it continues to be 40 days, 20 centuries later. It's a season of preparation. One element that is often neglected in Lent, though, is that it's a time also to do good works. It's a time to serve others, not just to withdraw and repent. You see how meaningful this is for us as Christians? We can look at this pandemic and this isolation and see it's a time of sifting, a time of drawing near to Christ, and a time of thinking about serving others. So during this particular season of Lent, we may want to reflect on how we might do good works to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Again, our call is to be 
real Christians. And so this sermon is not irrelevant. To be a real Christian is to abide by God's law. Sabbath, a matter of life and death. I could start this sermon with many stories about the Sabbath. I have lots of them, and I have some funny ones too, but Scripture is not quite so funny about the Sabbath. I think my stories might mislead us a little bit. We may want to talk about having a high view of Scripture. That's what I'd like to talk about. But I believe that people in the West do not really read the Bible carefully, respectfully, and obediently. If we did, we would probably fast every week. Do you? There's another poll you can take if you want to take a poll. How many people fast at least one day a week? Jesus assumed we would fast and we would be very strict, not pharisaical because the Pharisees misused the Sabbath for themselves, but we'd be very strict about keeping Sabbath. Our morning reading makes this very clear. So my first point is a simple one, and I only have two points, a three-point sermon. They're very long, so there's only two. If I'm invited back, I'll do a third point. First, the Sabbath is very, very important. Really, that's my first point. I even included the really. The Sabbath is very, very important. Really. When we look at the law in Deuteronomy 5, we see that it covers verses 6 to 21. And this is the point where it'd be good to bring out your Bibles. You can check it and make sure that I'm telling you the truth. So in those verses, 6 to 21, it encompasses all about the Ten Commandments. The first five verses, before we get to verse 6, introduce the topic saying something like this. This is very important. God made a covenant with his people, and the core of the covenant says God will be our God and will protect and provide for us. We will obey him, living according to his law. His law is really good. Let me repeat this. His law is really good. The longest psalm in the Bible is about God's law and how good it is. Psalm 119, in case we couldn't remember. That's what the first part says. It's all a part of a covenant, and it's really, really important. So the first five verses frame what the law is, showing us that it is not a free-floating demand from God, but it's part of a relationship. God has turned his face toward us. It says Moses looked at God and saw God face to face. He turned his face towards us and has shown us out of his deep, deep love how we are to live. If we live according to the law, we will receive blessings from God. It is both natural and supernatural. First, it's natural. Think about the Ten Commandments this way. When you do not commit adultery or when you do not steal, life goes a lot better. (laughs) It really does. You can sleep well at night. The police or your neighbor do not come after you. You feel safe. Life is better when you do not steal from other people. You may quote me. The president of Gordon-Conwell said it's better not to steal. That's true. The same can be said for murder or even idolatry. It is the way God made us. We function better and we stay healthier physically, emotionally, and spiritually when we follow the Ten Commandments. Even atheists can benefit from following the Ten Commandments. And keeping the Sabbath holy is actually good for you. 
I won't go into all the medical reasons because it's not necessary this morning. Secondly, there's a supernatural dimension to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament for the Jews. For Israel, before the time of Jesus, embracing the law meant God's presence and blessing was preserved for them. This was a supernatural blessing for them. God presented himself in smoke and fire. He actually consumed some of the sacrifices. And remember the battle of Jericho? There were supernatural victories that they, they were blessed with when they lived within the covenant. Covenant blessings were theirs, even supernatural blessings. Now, for us now, we know that we cannot perfectly follow the law. Because we cannot fully obey the law on our own, we do not have that natural or supernatural blessings quite like Israel did. did. We know from Scripture that the law had to be fulfilled by the perfect one, God in the flesh, Jesus. Through him, we receive covenant life and blessings. Jesus was Lord over the law, and therefore he was Lord over the Sabbath, which was part of the law, and he has fulfilled it. But you have to wait till later in the end of the sermon to find out exactly how that Sabbath was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But my point is, before we could not obey, now we can obey. And when we get to heaven, we can only obey. So Jesus has made it possible for us to obey and to actually fulfill the law. Now back to chapter 5. I was talking about the verses. Remember that? I have some statistics for engineers and scientists among us. And some of them who are playing the praise music this morning, I think, will like this because you're scientists, right? And so here we go. Of the 15 verses that talk about the actual Ten Commandments, most of the commandments have only one verse. Commandment 1 is verse 6. Commandment 3 is verse 11. And then commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are verses 16 to 21. What this means is that two of the commandments have more than one verse. What commandments are those? I'm glad you asked. Commandment two, no idols, has three verses. And commandment four, our favorite commandment for today on the Sabbath, has four verses. Let me suggest a reason for this. These two commandments strike at the core of our relationship with God. If we get these two commandments correct... We have built a foundation for our relationship with God. These two commandments strike at the core of human sin. Even though I was not invited to talk about idolatry today, let me just make a brief comment about the second commandment. And then maybe I'll be invited back to finish this thought another time. I'll come back and preach about idolatry. Actually, I'll preach against idolatry. Please don't say I'm going to preach for idolatry. I'm against it. The greatest temptation of all of humanity is to worship the wrong God with a small g. All cultures develop religion, and they build their own worship around a cultural trait or a totem. It may be cows, or it may be the sun, 
I, I think one of the largest temples in the world is a temple to the sun that's in Lebanon. It is massive. It's about two or three football fields long. And it had pillars of marble that were brought up from Egypt. And those pillars are over six feet in diameter. It is massive. And it was built to honor the sun. Or other people worship gods or goddesses of their ethnic group. That's what Athena was, the goddess for Athens. It's a type of patriotism, we might say. Lug was the god of the Celts, a great warrior god. God knew this was going to be our temptation. That's why there were such strict teachings against inviting other people from other ethnic groups with their gods and deities to come and intermarry. Because the temptation to worship idols is huge. All of humanity is tempted to worship something physical, an IRA account, a second home, a car, a title, or something we have made. When we worship something lesser than God himself, we become less than we really are. We are lesser beings when we worship a lesser being or thing. So it makes sense that there would be a longer explanation about the second commandment. And again, I can talk about that later if you like. Now, why is the Sabbath the longest section here in this, in this uh, section on the Ten Commandments? Because our second temptation, or our first and greatest temptation, is to think we are in control. I think that is really what the, uh, the fall is about in Genesis 3. You could say original sin is self-arrogation, lifting yourself up. Did God say that? No. You can make your own decision. You can be your own God. That's the temptation. We think, if you will, that we're God. I have seen it over and over again. We cannot take a whole day off and disconnect from our duties. We've got to do it ourselves. We have to continue to work. I have to do it myself. Sabbath says to each one of us, contrarywise, God is Lord, and you need to let go of things for a while to remember that God is Lord. It is for your own good health and for your spiritual health especially. Sabbath says one thing, trust God. That's what Sabbath says, trust God. Now it's time for stories. Since 2012, I have been in administration at seminaries, and I've had people working under me. I hate to say it that way, but they kind of look to me to, to lead. Seldom have I had to tell people to work harder. Seldom. And I can tell you I've never had to tell Jeffrey Arthurs to work harder. I have had to tell him to make sure he keeps the Sabbath. I think that both the seminary where I used to work and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, we hire evangelical overachievers. <laughs> Most all of them are. The people we hire have worked very hard to earn their degrees and to publish books, and they get degrees from very impressive institutions. Not like, you know, Bob and Sally's PhD program or something where you send off $150 and you get a doctorate. These are very bright people who had to work very hard to get their doctorates. I seldom have to tell them to work harder. In fact, I don't think I ever told a faculty member to work harder, <laughs> ever. But I have often have, 
had conversations about keeping the Sabbath. Often. Matter of fact, almost every week it comes up. I just thought of something. I hope Sabbath doesn't become an idol for me because <laughs> I'm talking about it a lot. That may be a paradox. But anyway, to get back to the sermon, I fear there is another reason they work so hard. And listen carefully because this is not just true of our faculty. I think it's true of a lot of evangelicalism. I think our evangelical faith has an unhealthy DNA sequencing of works religion. Somewhere in our history, we cross-fertilized the great American dream with evangelism and mission. The great American dream says if you work really hard, you can make it. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it if you will. It is that kind of pull yourself up up by your bootstraps, which has been interwoven. When you combine that with evangelical commitment to evangelism and mission and church growth, you end up with a type of health and wealth gospel that requires us, each one of us, to give evidence of our own spirituality. Failure and suffering are antithetical to this type of evangelical theology. You have to be a success. You have to do your job well. You have to prove that you're doing well. But both suffering and failure are very much a part of the Christian life. It was a part of Jesus' life. He suffered. That's right, both failure and suffering are part of the Christian life. On a human level, you could say Jesus failed. Because when he was on the cross, people abandoned him and it looked like it was all over. It was only in the resurrection that failure was turned to a miraculous explosion of success. So as an administrator, I have seen the following. This is, these are facts here. And in each case, people were working very hard seven days a week. One professor I had to give an unearned three-month sabbatical to get his health back. He was gaining weight. His blood pressure was going up. He was going, as his blood pressure went up, medicine could not control it. His doctor said he had the S word, stress. You're not sick, you have stress. Was I making his life more stressful? A second faculty member told me that he had to work seven days a week for three months, and then he had heart problems. I was not telling him to work on Sundays or late into the evening every day. In fact, I was shocked when he told me this. I was angry, I was upset. Then I had another faculty member who also could not turn off or let go or disconnect. Those are three good expressions about the Sabbath. Let me repeat them. Turn off, let go, disconnect. While meeting in the office with another administrator, this faculty member collapsed. She seemed to be having a heart attack. The ambulance came, hospital phone calls, hospital visits. She also had the S word, stress. I could go on and on. I've counted at least seven of my faculty members who have had medical problems because they did not or could not let go. They developed false heart attacks, back problems, foot problems, digestive problems, root canal issues. Yes, stress can cause this and an inability to think clearly. Obviously, you don't want to work for me. 
No, actually, some of these people had the problems when I got in the position, so don't think that I caused it all. But let's be honest. This is also true of pastors and of many Christian workers in our churches. We want to give God the very best, and in doing so, we don't really trust God. It seems so odd, doesn't it? Trust, another word for trust is faith. We don't really have faith in God. Sabbath, you see, is really very, very important, friends. Exactly how important is it is found in our second reading today from Numbers 32. I call it the stick man. <laughs> Actually, he's a man who was gathering sticks. But the stick man was out. He couldn't turn off. He had to collect sticks, you know, for his fire and so forth. But Sunday, he's going to keep doing the same old thing. And they weren't sure what to do with the stick man. So they asked and checked into it. And God says, this is serious. This Sabbath-keeping thing is really serious. He should be stoned to death. That's what happens when you ignore God's law. Sabbath-keeping is a matter of life and death. Jesus does not endorse killing people for, obeying, for not obeying the fourth commandment, so don't get carried away. In fact, many of us are already killing ourselves by not honoring the Sabbath. You get my point? Now, for a briefer point, that was my first point of the sermon. Did you get it? That was a long point. Here's the second point. It's much shorter. Sabbath is life-renewing rest. Sabbath is life-renewing rest. Another story. When I was teaching at another seminary, we had a small group that met every week, and we were introducing one another. We took a whole hour for two people to introduce themselves, tell a little about their faith story, why they were studying seminary, in this case, why they were, wanted to be a missionary or where they were serving as a missionary. And so it got to this one uh, woman's uh, turn. I'll, I'll call her Mary, okay? And I said, Mary, tell, her, tell, me, uh, tell us about yourself. And she said, oh, well, the first thing you need to know about me is I just love Sabbath. That was the first thing she said. I have never heard anybody introduce themselves that way. You know, the first thing you need to know about me is I was one of 12 children. You know, wow, that's interesting. Or the first thing you need to know about me is, you know, I survived, you know, an auto accident. The first thing you need to know about me is I love Sabbath. Her roommate was sitting right next to her, and she immediately says, oh, that's true. She loves Sabbath. So she wasn't just making it up. It was evident Everybody knew this Mary knew she loved Sabbath. She was not going to conceal it. It was so much a part of who she is. Some people, you know, like to wear bow ties. And, and like to wear bow ties. They're known as the person wearing the bow tie. You know, they just like to wear bow ties. And you know, oh yeah, so-and-so wears a bow tie. I have never worn a bow tie in my life except the clip-ons, okay? I'm not that kind of person. Mary was the kind of person, she said, oh, Sabbath. She's a Sabbath person. Because it was just so much a part of who she is. She worked six years in China. Oh, this is a Chinese church. It just made the connection. She worked six years in China without a sabbatical, without a furlough to go home. She never went home. She moved from the United States, went to China, learned Chinese, started teaching English in China, working, leading people to faith in Christ. And all that time, she never went home. 
She never saw a family member. She never saw her friends. And she lived out in, in western China in a village. She wasn't near a lot of foreigners. How did she do it? That is very difficult to do. She had a secret. Sabbath. She kept Sabbath. She was so close to God every day. And her roommate would say, say that she would go up in the mountains. She'd ride her bike or take a hike, take her Bible and notebook, and just sit up there and pray for hours. She'd come back. She'd take a nap. She'd go take a walk and pray. She loved Sabbath. She said, can you imagine one day every week, God wants to spend the whole day with me. Isn't that great? That was the attitude that she had. Love it. Sabbath is a gift. It is a gift from God for your health, for your well-being. When we reject it or compromise it, we're saying to God that we know better, and that we don't trust God. Trust him, please. Trust him. Sabbath is a renewing rest. We are designed to work six days a week. Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. What does rest look like? Let me make some suggestions for you. This is the practical or the application part of the sermon here. Are you ready? Number one, if you're part of a family, don't do Sabbath alone. Talk together as a family about how you're going to honor Sabbath so you're all on the same page. My wife knows my pattern. We talk about it. She's going to expect me to be lost for two or three hours reading something that I just love to read, to relax. Uh, it's not something related to my work or my research. It's something I want to read. She knows I want to take a walk. She'll know I want to take a nap. I know what she wants to do. She wants to take a walk. We want to have some time together and talk. So we know that. So it's recreating for us because we talk about it. So the first thing is, if you're in a family, talk together with your spouse or with your kids and your household of how you as a family are going to honor Sabbath. If someone must work on Sundays, their Sabbath will have to be another day. But everyone must be on the same page in order to support one another in recreating, which is what the Sabbath does. I remember when our children were younger, we, uh, I, we usually took, I took off from Sunday sunset or Saturday sunset until Sunday sunset, and that was time for the kids. So we would go out then, you know, apple picking, or we would go take a walk or play at the playground, but it was time for them to be with dad and, and, and without any kind of preoccupation. Uh, now, at that time, we didn't have cell phones, but I wasn't preoccupied going and calling or checking up on people or checking my work. It was just totally totally, purely, time with family. And we always look forward to it. Secondly, Sabbath rest is rest with God. Drawing near to God and away from work, from school, from the normal activities that include that work, 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 work week. We disconnect and we spend time with God. We draw near to God. It means reading the Bible 
You should read the Bible more on Sundays. It means meditating on the Bible or memorizing verses so you can think about applying what it says there. It means prayer, walking and praying, sitting and praying. It means staying at home or doing activity that's restful and re-energizes us. It does not mean working hard at playing. <laughs> if you're working real hard at playing, you're probably not resting. Recreation or recreation must recreate us and not tire us out. I'm not making a law here. I'm not going to make any law about the, the, the Sabbath. That was the Pharisees' job, and they did it wrong. I'm just stating the fact that Sabbath rest must be rest with God. It may actually involve a nap. It does for me. Most every week, I actually take a nap. Three, Sabbath in the 21st century is different from Sabbath in the 20th century. In the 21st century, Sabbath means disconnecting from work. No work-related emails. No text or messaging related to work. A work-related email brings our mind and our soul away from God. We need to trust God that all the concerns that we had on Friday or Saturday will still be there on Monday. We do not need to work on those issues on our Sabbath day. Now, there is a proviso here. I'm the president of a seminary, <clears throat> and if something terrible happens, I do tell people they can text me, and I'll answer a text if, you know, there's an earthquake and a building falls down. Or if we, in a situation like this, if we find out some people are sick in the dorm, I have to be reached. So there, is, there are some limits when you have certain positions. That I realize. But for most of us, the whole company, the whole school is not dependent upon our getting on the web on Sunday or answering phone calls from people at work or making phone calls to people at work. We do not need to work on those issues that seem so pressing on Friday on Sunday. In fact, it's a proven fact that if we have a rhythm of life that actually rests for 24 hours, we will think better about our school, work, papers, or job. It gives your mind time to rest and to reflect, and you will think better on Monday. I can't tell you the number of times I've come in Monday morning with ideas, things that begin to connect, all of a sudden I realize things that I didn't realize on Friday. We, you, we all will make better decisions. I remember well when Nancy and I moved to Ipswich, Massachusetts, so I could begin my studies at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. After my first week of Greek, I thought, how in the world am I going to do this? Graduate school, learning a foreign language with letters I don't even recognize, and then I've got one wife and two kids. I still have one wife, but now I have four kids. The children were two months old and two years old, and I was having a really hard time. Well, I decided I needed help. I prayed. My response was to try to be faithful to God, getting up early, reading my Bible every day. Even though we were studying the Bible in seminary every day, I still had my own devotions every day and keeping Sabbath. You see, what I basically decided is, this is going to be really hard. I don't think I can do it. Okay, I'll just trust God. <laughs> In other words, I realized that working harder wasn't going to get there. So if God really wanted me to go to graduate school, 
he would do it on his terms. And so I decided to take him at his word, and it worked. I graduated, actually. I literally closed my books when I was in seminary right before dinner on Saturday, and I did not go back to my study or open a book until Sunday after dinner. Sundown to sundown. That was in 1981, and yes, I am very old. For most of my days since then, I have followed that same pattern since 1981. Since I'm working most of today, I got up very early this morning looking over my sermon, rewrote sections, etc., check the internet for more information about the news and what's going on. And now I won't get back until maybe 2 o'clock today. This is not really a Sabbath day for me. (laughs) Therefore, I will go home and see if I can take off another full day this week with my wife. Sabbath keeping makes for strong marriages. It makes for strong families. And it makes for healthy co-workers. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I can say, do not feel guilty. Thank God. He wants to spend a full day with you every week. Be filled with joy and thanksgiving. You have a Sabbath. God bless you.